The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Tamara Duker Freuman. She is a fellow registered dietitian, only she is nationally known for her expertise in digestive health and medical nutrition therapy for gastrointestinal diseases. In addition to her clinical work, she has written a book titled The Bloated Belly Whisperer, See Results Within a Week, and Tame Digestive Distress Once and for All. And we are going to dive into this book together. Tamara, welcome. Thank you so much, Melinda. Well, I'm really curious to know how my fellow dietitians find their work and their path. So tell me, how did you become interested in digestive health? I think it was while I was getting my master's degree in clinical nutrition. One of my professors put this diagram up on the board, and it was just this line drawing of the intestines, and it showed sort of all these points along the journey where different things were absorbed and what was happening at different neighborhoods of the digestive tract. And it just, it all came together for me that your digestive tract is kind of like this roadmap and different things are happening along the way. And so you can use that roadmap to help people navigate eating or symptoms when they're having trouble in a certain neighborhood. And I just love that one-to-one correlation between nutrients and nutrition and the roadmap of the intestines. And I was hooked on digestive health ever since then. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I've been a dietitian for over, gosh, 35 years, actually, And it seems to me that recently, the GI tract has really become the new frontier for understanding both mental and physical health. And we sort of focus our work on this whole digestive tract from the mouth to the anus. So I love to speak to dietitians who really specialize in this area. I've also seen, I think, and you can help me with your observations, but it seems to me that more people today are complaining about GI distress. Do you see that too in your practice? I think so. I mean, it's a little hard to say because I, I've only really worked for a gastroenterologist, so literally 100% of my patients have always complained of digestive problems. But I certainly think that there is an increased willingness to talk about it, and so we're hearing about it more. There's a lot of barriers and taboos that have been broken down just socially over the past decade. And so people who might have suffered in silence for a really long time are writing blogs and writing articles for magazines, and people are talking about their experiences on social media. And so we hear a lot more about it from people, certainly. Mm-hmm. Well, what I want to do first and foremost is go through an excellent list that you have in your book because we can dive into some of the different issues that people might be dealing with that you see often in your practice and maybe some solutions and we'll talk about fiber, etc. But I think that there's a page in your book that deserves mention and that is you say if your bloating is accompanied by any of the following symptoms, you should see a doctor promptly. Let's go through those because I think that Sometimes people might suffer with a symptom and not realize that they need to run and not walk to see a physician. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of self-diagnosis and doctor Googling going on. And for many mild chronic gastrointestinal symptoms, it may not be such a bad 
thing to do, but there are certain alarm symptoms that if you have them could indicate something serious, possibly cancer, possibly a severe malabsorption disorder or an infection. And so if you see blood in your stool, if you're vomiting, if you can't swallow, if you start losing weight more than just like a pound or two without trying, having nutritional deficiencies like an iron deficiency or a B12 deficiency for no apparent reason, like if you're not a vegan, right? If you turn yellow and start looking jaundiced, if you have a fever, and importantly, from a bloating perspective, if you have a bloated belly that looks pregnant 24-7, that is a concern. And so a lot of patients who have bloating will have times of the day where they're relatively flatter than others, and the bloating kind of comes and goes, maybe depending on their bathroom habits or what they've eaten. But most bloated patients should have a period where they are relatively flat mm-hmm. or flatter. And if that is never you, that you have your normal frame and this big pregnant-looking belly that is always there and doesn't change, that is a concern. And so any of those symptoms, you really want to get yourself to a doctor. What might that be indicative of if you've got this pregnant-looking belly So the two things that I'd be concerned about would be a liver problem, like a liver disease or something called ascites, where you start gathering a lot of fluid in your abdomen when your liver is not working properly. And ovarian cancer in some of the more advanced stages, you can start filling up with some fluid in your midsection. And so that pregnant-looking belly can be a concern if it really never changes and is unrelated to going to the bathroom and is unrelated to eating, something you want to see a doctor about. Okay, great. So these are some good tips. Now, in your practice, you've been working with gastroenterologists, you've been seeing patients that have a wide range of problems. What would you say is the most common? There's probably like two of them that are the most common. I think probably the most common is constipation. And what's interesting about constipation is many people who are constipated don't know it. And that seems like a funny thing to say. Like, you think that you would know if you're constipated. If you have a hard time going to the bathroom, you would know that. But there's kind of this insidious kind of constipation where you're able to go every day, but apparently you're not really completely defecating. And so you start to build up and build up this burden of stool in your intestines, and you end up being quite full and backed up of poop. And you don't know because you're going to the bathroom daily, maybe even more than once. And so you get all these symptoms that are associated with constipation, but it literally never occurs to you that you're constipated. And that's something that I actually see quite often. And so it can be really eye-opening to a patient when I say, you know what, I think you're full of poop. And then you get an x-ray and it really proves it. And then we have to understand why that is. Yeah. Um, Why might that be? So there's a few reasons why that might be. One really underdiagnosed and underrecognized cause of that is something called pelvic floor dysfunction. And that's when the sling-like muscles of your pelvic floor, which are required to coordinate in a certain way to allow you to pass stool, aren't working properly. One of the sling-like muscles is supposed to relax when you're trying to push out a poop, and sometimes it can contract and push the poop backwards, and that's where you start to get this stool burden building up. Sometimes people can have really weak pelvic floor muscles, and they can't really generate enough push pressure. Sometimes we'll see that, for example, in women after they've given birth to one or more children, and some of the muscles of the pelvic floor can be really weak. Sometimes the muscles can be too tight and you can't pass a stool because things are hypertensive, especially around the anus and the rectum. And, you know, the muscles inside are working, but the exit door is really tightly shut and you can't get a full, complete 
stool evacuated. And so looking at the nerves and muscle function around defecation can sometimes give you some clues as to whether there's something going wrong. And all of those things are fixable medically with various types of remedies and often very under-recognized. Would you say a physical therapist might be the best medical care provider to help a person with that? So people who do pelvic floor physical therapy are definitely part of the solution, but they're often not the full solution. And so the first thing is you need to get a really accurate diagnosis because there's different types of pelvic floor dysfunction. And if you're going to work with a physical therapist, they're going to need to know what is the nature of the problem. Is something too tight? Is something too loose? Which muscle's too tight? Which muscle's too loose? Because they need to get really specific with their therapy. And not every physical therapist is trained in pelvic floor physical therapy, so you'll need someone who really knows what they're doing. And very often, pelvic floor physical therapy is accompanied by another type of intervention called biofeedback. And that's when the physical therapist will actually attach some leads to various muscles externally and help retrain the nerves and muscles involved with pushing and moving your bowels so that you can reteach yourself how to poop correctly. And the biofeedback machine will give you notification, usually like a noise or like a video signal that you've gotten it right. And then you practice that motion over and over again until you learn how to control these muscles that are typically involuntary and things that you don't normally think about. Hmm. Would we be likely to have that kind of dysfunction develop, especially with aging then, I'm assuming? Sometimes. And so certainly with age that can happen. And again, that type of age-related dysfunction may develop more in women who have had vaginal deliveries of their children or some sort of trauma in childbirth, like a really complicated delivery. But often, I mean, more of my patients who I've seen have it are younger women who haven't necessarily had children. Pelvic floor dysfunction often travels with other types of conditions people with a history of eating disorders, anxiety, depression, some sort of strong emotional trauma, sexual trauma. Um, very often those types of emotional traumas can manifest physically and people can somatize them or kind of like internalize them. Right. And so all sorts of people can be prone to it. We've seen it in men too. I have plenty of male patients who have chronic prostate inflammation, prostatitis, and it turns out they've got a pelvic floor problem. And so we see it in young women and older men and older women. I've seen really patients across the board suffer from that problem. Yeah, this is so interesting. Okay, so constipation was one of the main issues that you deal with in your practice. What's the second most common one? So a lot of my patients have irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, and many of the patients with IBS are prone to another comorbid condition called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And again, that's something that I think nationally is pretty under-recognized, mostly because not every gastroenterologist has equipment to test for it. And so it's kind of like, if I can't test for it and I can't see it, does it even exist? I happen to work in a specialty practice where we do have the equipment to test for it. And so we can catch it a lot more often and we're very used to seeing it. So we know what it looks like when we see it. Do you want to just remind our listeners what IBS stands for? 
yes, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome, and that it's a functional bowel disorder where everything looks healthy, all the tissues appear healthy, and all the organs look like they're fine and normal, but the nerves and muscles that govern motion and motility in the intestinal tract don't really function normally, and the nerves that govern sensitivity to stimulus in the GI tract, whether it's from gas or food or chemicals in food, those are a little bit hypersensitive as well. And so that's what irritable bowel syndrome is. And then there's also, I've heard the acronym IBD. Right. So IBD is actually inflammatory bowel disease, and that refers to diseases like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And those are different than IBS because the tissues of the intestinal tract are not healthy. They are actively inflamed, and they can cause symptoms because of that inflammation, like diarrhea and abdominal pain and urgency. Wow. You've got a range of people that you deal with, and in addition to that, they all need special dietary manipulation, I would say. So let's say you're going to be working with someone who's got, say, this functional bowel disorder. What are your particular dietary recommendations for them? So I tailor my dietary recommendations to somebody's symptoms. And so somebody who's been living with a functional bowel disorder like IBS for some time will often have a pretty decent clue as to certain situations or foods that aggravate their symptoms. So, for example, some people with IBS will have a lot of urgency, like urgent need to go to the bathroom, urgent need to have diarrhea or just like a softer, more urgent stool. And often for them, it'll be around a larger meal. And often restaurants are a huge trigger because portions are so big. Right. Higher fat meals can be really triggering for them. And certain types of fiber can be really triggering for them. So sort of that roughage type fiber like salads and popcorn can be really triggering. And so people with that type of symptom pattern, I'm really working with them on smaller portions, like that small frequent meal patterns that they're not really stimulating the bowel with that big portion. We're not going too high in fat, so we're watching the fried foods and the creamy things, and we're keeping the fiber on that softer side. So instead of the roughage type of fiber, we might do more of what we call soluble fiber, which is like that softer textured fiber that's in like fruits and root vegetables and cooked grains. And so that type of symptom pattern would dictate that type of diet. Whereas someone who's having a lot of gas and gas pain might get a really different recommendation. Then we're really looking at where is all that gas coming from? You know, what in the diet is producing all that gas? And in a patient like that, I'm really suspicious for the role of certain types of carbohydrates that are really fermentable by our gut bacteria. And there's an acronym for them. They're called SODMAPs. And that's things like the fibers in beans and in Brussels sprouts and certain fruits might be high in in sugars like, you know, prunes and, and apples can be gassy for some people. So for someone who's having a lot of excess gas, I'm looking at what in the diet might be causing that. Well, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with the author of a terrific book, The Bloated Belly Whisperer, Ms. Tamara Duker-Froyman. She is a fellow registered dietitian and specializes in digestive diseases and dysfunction. You know, I'm so glad you brought up this issue of fiber because I just recently did some research looking at just how few people, like 5% of the population, actually meet their requirements for dietary fiber. And then at the same time, we've got individuals who really can't tolerate just any old fiber. So when we talk about the dietary guidelines, for example, 
the recommendations vary, but the folks who really do this research and look at the gut microbiota, they say really 35 to even 50 grams of fiber per day is probably at the therapeutic level. How do you counsel people on fiber? Let's say they're coming in with some bloating. I guess I'm assuming that you ask them to be able to identify if they can, which foods cause them a problem first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, it's always helpful. Like I'll start, like I'll ask some questions that are like litmus test kind of questions. Like, how do you feel after you have a salad? Is that like one of your safer meals or one of your really triggering meals? You know, someone who feels great after a salad is probably someone who does okay with that refugee insoluble fiber and maybe more sensitive to those gassy carbohydrates like FODMAPs because salads don't really have a lot of FODMAPs. Lettuce doesn't have FODMAP, neither does tomato and cucumber and carrots and sort of all the typical salad staples are pretty low in FODMAPs. So if someone feels great after a salad, that's a really big clue for me, right? And so I'll often ask questions about what foods feel the best, what are your safe foods, what foods have really bothered you in the past, and that can give me a lot of clues. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned FODMAPs. Can you tell us what that stands for? Yes, it's a real mouthful. So the F in FODMAP stands for fermentable, and that basically means that the bacteria in our guts can digest that fiber really, really well, but that also means that they will produce gas as a byproduct of that. The O stands for oligosaccharides, which is a family of medium to short chain complex carbohydrates. Uh, And then the D stands for disaccharides, which is basically lactose or milk sugar. The M stands for monosaccharides, which is fructose, which is a naturally occurring fruit sugar, and it's in honey as well. The A just stands for and, so that's an easy one. And then the P stands for polyols, which are, we may know those as sugar alcohols, which both naturally occur in some fruits like prunes and pears and apples, but also they're added to a lot of processed foods and low-calorie drinks and sugarless gums and sugar-free candies and no-sugar-added frozen yogurt because they really have very, very few calories. And so people who are looking to cut their sugar will often use these sugar alcohols as a substitute. But for some people, they're very, very gassy. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought these up because what I'm finding, because people are trying to avoid sugar, manufacturers are responding by cutting sugar, blasting that on the food label on the front of the package. And then if you read the ingredients, you're finding, oh, they're using some of these sugar substitutes. So the food still tastes sweet, but they can say, we've got less sugar in it. And then lo and behold, the unassuming consumer might suddenly have gas from that particular food and wonder, you know, what's going on? Exactly. I see a lot in my practice, people who come to me and they're like, ever since I changed my diet to be more healthy, I've been in digestive misery. And I'll look at the diet and I'll see what they're eating and I'll identify there's a few specific ingredients of what you're talking about. One of them is called inulin and sometimes it appears on an ingredient list as chicory root fiber and or also Jerusalem artichoke fiber it might be referred to as. And it is natural and it is very nourishing to the gut microbiota. They love it. But when you have a lot of it at once, it can be incredibly gassy. And it's in all those healthy eat-the-whole-pint ice creams, and it's in, like, some fat-free yogurts. It's even in some, like, almond milks I've seen it in or, like, some oat milks I've seen it in. It's used as a thickener in things that don't have a lot of fat, and it's also used as a sugar substitute because it has a naturally sweet flavor. And so it boosts up your fiber numbers. It gives you this creamy mouthfeel in certain products. And it replaces grains and starches with no calories. And so 
everyone from yogurt and almond milk companies to energy bar companies and fake ice cream companies love using it in their formulation. But it's really, really gassy. And again, those sugar alcohols are the other one that are in all sorts of like sugar-free bars and low-carb confections. They love using it because they don't cause cavities, they're very low-calorie, and they give you a lot of sweetness without really much calorie. But again, in higher amounts, they can be laxative and they can be gassy. I think there are two components of foods that people predominantly complain about in terms of giving them gas. One is lactose, which you mentioned, and the other one is with beans. And of course, the beans are certainly fermentable. They fall into that category. And the issue with lactose, of course, is the fact that we just don't produce as much lactase or the enzyme that breaks it down. So we think that beans are really healthy, can we compensate over time, like if we introduce beans slowly into the diet that eventually will become more adaptable to those? Maybe. That's not really clear. I mean, I think the amount of gas that you produce in response to a food, A, you know, for beans, nobody digests that fiber. It's not like human beings ever had the enzyme for it. So all human beings don't digest the oligosaccharides in beans. The question is, are you bothered by the gas that they produce, and a lot of that just has to do with how sensitive you are in terms of feeling gas in your bowel. And so I don't know how much you're going to adapt to that because you're still always going to produce gas by definition. However, just because humans don't produce enzymes to break down the gassy fibers in beans, it doesn't mean nobody can. There's actually this type of mold that makes an enzyme that breaks down the gassy fiber in beans, and it's called alpha-galactosidase. That's the name of the enzyme. And you can buy it in a pill, and you can take it when you eat beans and Brussels sprouts and broccoli and cashews and pistachios and any food that has that same type of gassy fiber. And it basically is kind of like taking a lactase pill, but for beans. I see. And is that called Beano? Beano is one brand of it. There's another brand called Beanzyme, which I happen to prefer just because Beano has a sugar alcohol in it as a filler. And some people wow. find that filler gassy. And so I prefer to look for brands that don't have a gassy filler in it. But certainly Beano is a very popular brand of alpha-galactosidase. That's really good to know. And I think a lot of times with medications, we find that there are components in it that might upset our stomach. So let's talk about some of those. What about medications? Are there some that are known to cause GI distress? Yes, for sure. Any medication or supplement that has sorbitol or mannitol as an inactive can produce some gas or some looser stools in susceptible people, though you're more likely to see that in people who are taking multiple different medications because it's kind of a dose-dependent reaction. Many birth control pills have lactose in it, which, you know, it may not be that much per pill, but if you are like a super-duper sensitive person, it may be enough to really bother you. And so certainly, you know, birth control pills and any kind of supplement or medication that has sorbitol or mannitol. And then there's these very popular medications that many people use that do have diarrhea as a side effect. So one really common one is called metformin. And many people take that if they have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes or polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. So many people will be on metformin, and diarrhea is not an uncommon side effect of that medication, and people don't necessarily realize that. Another side effect of the proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, which are, again, a very commonly prescribed 
medication for chronic acid reflux disease or GERD. That can cause diarrhea in certain people. And over time, if you're on it for a long time, it may also contribute to the risk of developing the SIBO, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which can cause diarrhea in and of itself. Mm. A lot of blood pressure medications can cause diarrhea, many different classes of blood pressure medications, not just one. Some anti-seizure medications can cause diarrhea, and then certain medications can cause constipation. A lot of the painkillers, the narcotic painkillers, what we know as opioid painkillers, can cause raging constipation. And so medications can have all sorts of effects on the bowel. Oh, also antidepressants can affect the bowel, both in terms of diarrhea as well as constipation, depending on which medication. And so any kind of anti-anxiety medication or antidepressant can affect your bowels in unanticipated ways. Hmm. You've got a wonderful quiz in your book right at the very beginning, and it helps people really go through and answer true or false about particular symptoms. And I think that's one of the best components of your book, as well as you've got great recipes to help people who fall into all different categories. In fact, one of our fellow dietitians said, this book is the next best thing to a personal consultation with you. But we've got a few minutes left, and I want to turn the ball over to you. What do you want our listeners to know? So I want our listeners to know that if you have a symptom like bloating, and you are looking for a solution. You cannot assume that what worked for somebody else who also says that they have bloating is going to work for you. And there's a lot of sort of online information about like, oh, if you're bloated, eat these five foods, or oh, if you're bloated, take this supplement. But as I try to describe in my book, bloating is a symptom of many different things, and it's not just one thing. There's these 10 different medical conditions that I describe as being commonly associated with bloating. And so if you have bloating because your stomach is really, really slow to empty, the remedy for you is completely different than the remedy for somebody who's bloated because they're lactose intolerant. And so I think we're really used to hearing about these one-size-fits-all solutions, and there's a lot of well-meaning proselytizing among friends and Internet people, which is, oh, this helped me, maybe it should help you, or just follow this diet or take this supplement. And I think it's really important to get a very personalized approach and a personalized assessment as to what's actually causing your problem, because there will be different diets, different medical remedies, different dietary supplements, you know, different meal patterns that will be effective for bloating caused by different things. Mm, That's great advice. And really, your book is so thorough that if somebody wanted to start out and try to figure out what's going on, this might be a wonderful reference. I want to just bring up one other factor that people have told me maybe started their path with GI distress, and that was they had a foodborne illness. And following that foodborne illness, their GI tract just never seemed to get back the way it had been prior to the illness. What do you tell people who are dealing with those kinds of symptoms? Well, first of all, that it's not all in your head. So there is very well-established phenomena called post-infectious functional bowel disorders. And so there's something called post-infectious IBS or post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. There's post-infectious gastroparesis, which is when your stomach starts emptying very, very slowly all of a sudden. And sometimes these things get better with time. It may even take a few months and sometimes they don't. And so very often an acute bacterial infection of the gut from food poisoning or from, you know, contaminated water can really set off a change, a permanent or at least long-term change in the motility 
of your bowel that requires you to change how you eat and how you manage your diet and to get the symptoms that are controlled. Well, our time is up, but I want to thank you so much for being my guest. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Tamara duker Freuman. She is an expert in digestive issues, and she is the author of The Bloated Belly Whisperer. You can find out more about her work at thebloatedbellywhisperer.com and we'll provide that web link for our listeners. Thank you so much, Tamara. You've been a wonderful resource. Thank you so much for inviting me.